August 2021 saw the birth of Kent, the coming together of Kentech and the oil and gas business of SNC-Lavalin, together with other businesses formerly merged into SNCL, including Atkins Oil and Gas, Kent and Houston Offshore Engineering. So it's a bit of a mishmash, but a wonderful and powerful one. We're coming together to provide a new power to the energy industry. Now, it's no secret that mergers and acquisitions happen for financial reasons. The numbers have to stack up in a big way to undertake something so enormous. Companies today are combining in record numbers. But the business world seems littered with integrated companies that have lost value for shareholders. What forces are powerful enough to counteract the value-creating energy of economies of scale or global market presence? Culture has emerged as one of the dominant barriers to effective integrations. In one study, culture was found to be the cause of 30% of failed integrations. Organisational culture has always been something that's been front and centre of mind for our CEO. He sees it as the underlying fabric that holds an organisation together. We spend way too much time at work for it to be an unhappy place to be. In countless studies, most people have rated time at work as one of the least enjoyable experiences in a day. This is going to create an enormous well-being gap, both for the people at work and for all the people close to them who are going to feel the residual ill effects. Research proves that culture is also intrinsically linked to performance, both personal and organisational. People today want to work for a company that serves a greater purpose than shareholder value. When a culture is unhealthy, customers also take note. And boards and shareholders are now starting to realise, measuring employee sentiment and demanding that cultures are both productive and ethical. So it's no wonder that culture was front and centre as soon as Kent was born and we embarked on our culture project to make sure it's moulded for success for everyone. At the end of 2021, we completed our listening phase, which consisted of 40 culture conversations, including over 1,000 people. And there were additional local language workshops, one-to-one discovery sessions with 15 frontline project managers, plus 12 surveys over 12 weeks, translated into nine languages. And who better to help us navigate this enormous project but two very special people who have been working with our leadership team for over two years, Mel Woonwell and Kylie Roberts from Shift Unlimited. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as we learn more about Mel and Kylie's work and just why they think organisational culture is so important. This is Spark Generation. Hi, Mel and Kylie. Welcome to Spark Generation. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Um, So to kick us all off, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about yourselves and who you share your life with. So uh, this is Kylie speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you'll get the, the, um, you can tell by the accents. But um, Yeah. yeah, so who I share my life with. I share my life with Nick um, and we have two little boys. One is seven and his name is Harper and the other is Jackson and he's five. And I also have a 17-year-old stepdaughter uh, from Nick's first marriage and she's Maya. Lovely, Mel. 
Yes, so my name's Mel Wormwell. I have four children, they've all left home now. So I share my life with my husband and dog called Poppy. Lovely. And you live in Dubai right now? Yes, most of my time is spent in Dubai and then I come back to the UK from time to time with work commitments and to see my business partner. Yeah, and because you're in the UK, aren't you, Kylie? That's right. I'm in London. Right. Oh, very good. Um, where did each of you grow up? So um, I grew up in Australia, so I grew up in a city called Brisbane, which a lot of people do know nowadays. Um, when I first came to the UK, I had to explain where Brisbane was in relation to Sydney. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Brisbane and um, I have a big, relatively big family. Uh, they're all still in Australia. And I came over to the UK when I was 21. So I go back to Australia as often as I can, um, but that's where I grew up. And what does a big family look like? Yeah, well, um, I guess it's big for these days, but um, I have two older brothers and one younger sister. So there were four four of us as siblings. And mm. I have something in the realm of 50 to 60 cousins. <laughs> my, wow. My mum had, I think it was 12, has 12 brothers and sisters. And my dad has six uh, and they each had like four children each. <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of cousins <laughs> in our family. Yeah. And what about you, Mel? Where did you grow up? I uh, I'm a bit of a global nomad. So I lived in the UK until I was two, and then um, we moved over to the states. And uh, I travelled around the big forests of America. My mum was um, with a lumberjack at the time. So stayed there till I was six, spent six months on a Buddhist commune, terrorizing the Buddhists, I think, <laughs> as a two-year-old, and then came back and have had a relatively, a relatively um, stable place of uh, residence since then. So mostly the UK since then. Wow, that's interesting. Um, what did your early employment look like? Because um, it's a lot different to what it looks like now. So talk us through where you started out. Yeah, so I um, actually moved over to France. as didn't speak any French at all. <laughs> moved over to Paris and worked over in Paris for three years in my 20s um, for an uh, American Parisian company. It was the clash of the cultures. It was really interesting to see, not clash in so much as there was tension, but just so different, so different yeah. in terms of. So I was working there for three years, learned French, then uh, moved back, worked in the pharmaceutical industry um, for a number of years. And then when I was 30, I uh, was on maternity leave and came up with a, an idea which led to setting up a business, which um, I ran with various other people over the course of the 20 years that it was running and then moved and what, into professional services. Right. OK. Well, what was your early profession? Like you've worked in these industries, but what were you doing in these industries? So I was a general manager of a small tourist business in France, in Paris. Right. So I looked after um, 35 apartments around the city and welcomed guests in and just checked everything was running smoothly. Then in the pharmaceutical um, company, I worked for GlaxoSmithKline and was in sales and marketing. And then the consultancy 
that I had was around peak performance selling to begin with. And then as as people um, got promoted, it moved more into creating high-performing teams. And then it moved into, well, can you create a high-performing division? And then can you create a high-performing organization? So it kind of expanded out as the people we were um, working with got more and more senior. And it was yeah. at the heart of it was um, get get yourself right, believe in yourself, have responsibility for you and your success, and then and then focus on the tools and techniques of the trade. Right. Okay. And what about you, Kayla? Early career, um, I was very lucky, actually. My early career was um, literally after I landed from Australia in the UK, and I got a job with Merrill Lynch. I didn't know who they were, um, but I really wanted to do organizational psychology so be in a learning or a talent function in any business and so I started out very junior in Merrill Lynch and then very quickly realized uh, who Merrill Lynch was and realized I was quite lucky to be in such a great brand um, early on in my career and then all the rest kind of followed from there to be honest so then I moved into HSBC I was part of a small team in HSBC and I progressed quite quickly there but the small team was deliberately set up to be the change managers for the new headquarters so HSBC was building Canary Wharf in London at the time Mm -hmm. and um, so it was a building site when I first joined HSBC and we were a team that was designed to go around literally all these offices all over um, London to help everybody prepare for the move into um, Canary Wharf. And at that time, Canary Wharf was considered outside of centre of London. (laughs) So it was considered outside of London. Um, So people were working in the city and they were very reluctant to move to Canary Wharf. It was very modern environment. And I was going into executive um, office spaces in London that had been there for 30 years. People had sat in the same chair and desk for 30 Mm. years. So the um, the task in terms of change management was really quite a lot of fun because it was very psychological around not just preparing people physically for a move but actually emotionally to let go of this desk and this chair that they'd sat in for 30-something years and all the paper, the filing <laughs> cabinets that, <laughs> that went with it. So after HSBC, um, you know, it's such a big business in – you can do anything in that organization. You can move around quite a lot. But after HSBC, I moved into Deloitte and I uh, kind of um, was promoted a couple of times in Deloitte, but I ended up being the head of um, director and partner development at the time and also the um, lead for learning and talent in the corporate finance part of the business. And I was actually there for nine years It's also where I met Nick as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was also the beginning of my journey with coaching. I set up coaching inside Deloitte and then Deloitte won some awards for that and we became the the prototype that other professional services started to follow. So we helped other professional services set up coaching as a way of being and as a practice as well. So it was really a lot of fun in Deloitte. Uh, and then I moved on to Grant Thornton, which is where I met Mel. Uh, I was just going to say, how did that, how did the relationship between you two come about? 
so you worked together at Grant Thornton. Yeah, so um, for me personally, I was at Deloitte at the time and um, the the executive team of Grant Thornton contacted me and just said, oh, there's this really great job here. We're interested. Um, do you want to come and speak to us? And I believe that they also said the same thing to Mel. So we didn't actually know each other, but both of us ended up being uh, interviewed by the entire board. <laughs> so like um, going into the boardroom and being interviewed by the entire board. And from what I understand at that period, they decided that they had liked us both and there was enough work for both of us. So they brought us both on and that's when I met Mel. So just um, as I was transitioning out of Deloitte and Mel can share her story about where she was transitioning from, uh, we met. We met for lunch in Grant Thornton and I guess the rest, the rest is, is history. history. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, how do you go from working for big organisations like this with everything that gives you to sort of making that leap and deciding to set up your own business? I mean, how long how long did you actually work together in a business like that before you decided to um, set up your own business together? So we were um, both at Grant Thornton for six years. It was it was a big task. It was a complete um, re redesign of everything to do with talent and also working with the partners and directors to help them um, shift and adapt to the way professional services were changing. Um, but during that time as well, there were a f- there were a few things that happened in professional services that meant that the regulations got a lot tighter. So they got tighter in terms of um, everything had to be recorded, minutes, and uh, because it was um, FCA, Financial Conduct Authority, regulated, the work Kylie and I were doing was becoming ever more difficult because we are coaches mm-hmm. and coaching is about confidentiality. So we were rubbing up against the authorities, refusing to make notes of our coaching sessions and share them on the system. Um, and, and so for that reason, and I was also noticing, I'll let Kylie tell her own story, but I was noticing the world was really changing and I was wanting to adapt with the world mm-hmm. and um, met a lot of resistance in the organisation in terms of flexible working, in terms of the team being flexible in their work hours that we worked and everything else and I just decided um, I mean I'd had my own business for 20 years anyway that I was ready to just do business on my own terms and that that was kind of a a big decision maker for me freedom still a a scary (laughs) thing to do though I think maybe that's just just I mean it's it's a brilliant thing to do but that complete complete reliance on being able to get the work to make your own income and there's a lot of insecurity with all of that so um but I'm guess I'm guessing you've got such great previous acumen that you kind of knew that it was all going to work out okay I think we both have had some you know we we both understood the importance of having a good network and and now, doing networking from the heart, so you actually connect with people, you really enjoy their company. It's not just have a few words, exchange business cards and put them on your LinkedIn um, network. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, we were quite confident. A number of people had said, if you're doing anything on your own, please come and talk to us. We'd like to work with you. We don't. Um, so it, I I think it was exciting. And I, I don't think we really thought about the fact that it was a risk, particularly we were we were high on the concept of what we wanted to do, I think. Cool. 
Um, so I'm going to quote you to you right now, if that's not too weird. Um, but it just for the for the audience listening, it frames the ethos of the kind of work that you do and, and why you do it, if you know what I mean. So in a world where we're consuming 1.6 years worth of our world's resources every year, where people want their organisations to have a meaning and purpose beyond just profit, and where colleagues are demanding authentic, personally aware, connected leaders who empower them, leaders and change makers have a lot to think about. At Shift Unlimited, we work with leaders and organisations as they experiment with emerging leadership style ethos and practices which enable them to reinvent their organisations. Um, so this is the work that you, this is the ethos behind the work that you've been doing with our leadership team at Kent since is it 2019 that you first started working with the previous Kentech leadership team. Yeah. How did that how did that come about? Like where where was the introduction there into us? Uh, so that came about from Ben Jones. So your amazing <laughs> Ben Jones. Yeah. Um, ben and I had known each other from Deloitte days and also between um, the periods of time between Deloitte and where Ben is now in Kent. Um, so Mel and I had an introduction via Ben to John Kavanagh, which a lot of you yeah. will know or remember. Um, he was the head of people at the time in Kentech and Sarah Kent as well, um, who was the then CEO. So we met the two of them and they had a, a conversation. We had a really lovely conversation, a very interesting conversation with them around how leadership is changing and that um, businesses do need to be different than how they have been before not just to survive but actually to thrive and this was all pre-pandemic <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. and we talked a little bit about how we work with leaders one-to-one -one and how we work with leaders as a team and that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship <laughs> um the the quote that I've just quoted back to you there the end part of it talks about reinventing organizations um how important is that book that Frederick Laloux book in the work that you do, because it's something that something that a lot of people will have heard John Gilly talk about. At every opportunity he mentions that book and he recommends it to everybody he speaks to. Um, so how important is it in, in framing the work that you do with organisations? We, we recommend a few books. That's one that we always recommend. And it's important because it starts to challenge the what we call the paradigm, the way that organizations are structured today. So most people will recognize that organizations mostly today are structured as a triangle, um, mm. which um, sounds good in theory because everything's very controlled and very regimented. Um, the downside of it is it makes organizations slow and it makes creates a lot of bureaucracy and there's quite a long lead time between um, someone who's client-facing making requests going all the way to whoever needs to sign it off and come back again. So it's not necessarily that we're advocating that every organisation should be like the reinvented organisation Frederick Lalu talks about, which is much, much flatter, although we probably would. It's just to get people thinking about alternatives. So how could we be more agile? How could we be more empowering? And it, it enables a different kind of conversation. And it gives us a gauge as well of the openness of the leader 
because leaders who are resistant to every aspect of it, we, we know that they're quite traditional in their outlook. And so there is more work that needs yeah. to be done to kind of unfreeze their thinking. Um, so, yeah. Um, how So you started with us 2019. So a couple of years you've been working with the leadership team now. What What is it? What, what work do you do with the leadership team? And has it evolved over time? And if it has, how has it changed? Yeah, um, the work that we started out doing with the leadership team is our flagship one-to-one coaching program that Mel and I have called Shift to Transform. Um, That coaching program is a 12-month coaching program where somebody works alongside us, we work, work alongside them for 12 months. We will meet with them once a month for two hours Um, but they've got access to us between those sessions and there's as Mel was saying you know there might be some prompts from us in terms of reading we're always reading and listening to things Mel and I so if we hear something or read something that we think a client might like as well we're kind of passing it on so in terms of between the sessions there's lots of um, things that can be happening between us and our um, our clients But ultimately, that program we designed um, around the fact that we have been coaches for a long time and also we have spent a long time developing leaders. So it's a bit of coaching and leadership development in the same program. And we strongly believe that the paradigm, as Mel was saying, the paradigm has flipped entirely on its head. I remember when I first came to the UK, the first question people would ask me after they found out my name was, what do you do? It was like, felt like it was mm-hmm. um, everything that I said in answer to that question on what I did was a definition of who I was. Um, so we strongly believe the paradigm has flipped on its head. So instead of it being what you do determines who you are, it's who you are determines what you do and drives what you do. So this Shift to Transform one-to-one coaching program is a really deep exploration of who you are, who am I, and how is that driving how I show up in the world, um, how I lead, um, you know, lead my life as well as lead in business. Uh, So that's, that's how we started off working with the leadership team. And then the pandemic hit and you know, as with every business, a lot had to change quite quickly early on in order to survive um, the pandemic. Nobody knew, I didn't think, that it was going to last this long. Um, mm. So there was a lot of crisis um, leadership at the beginning. And so Mel and I also started to work with the team more from pretty much, I think, from that point, Mel, like around the pandemic time. Uh, so we still work one-to-one with leaders and like the leaders um, have broadened across the business. So there's more, more leaders that we're working with now um, in Kent and also with the sounding board and the hub. Um, And I guess there's been, well, a lot of change going on within our organization. So, so yes, the leadership team has expanded because the business has expanded, but we're all going through, and I mean, pandemic aside, as if that wasn't difficult enough, <laughs> um, we're all going through a massive period of change where 
um, the business is changing and, and what we previously knew isn't the same anymore. So um, I guess that's that's kind of the basis of what you're kind of helping to coach everybody through as well. Exactly. And um, it has, it's been an extraordinary in terms of people have experienced change from a personal perspective. They've experienced a change in terms of the people around them and also the organisation. Um, and this not knowing quite what you're going to wake up to every morning means that um, you know, there's greater levels of uncertainty. And we are creatures of comfort. We like to have certainty. And so there is a, a lot of change going on. And we, Kylie and I have both worked in the culture change programs and on turnaround um, projects and things like that. So it was kind of interesting how our our work started to expand a little bit to just starting to talk about, well, this is an extraordinary opportunity. You are going through the pandemic. You've had the oil um, price crisis. You've got a potential opportunity for a merger or acquisition. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, it could be a challenge and it's also an incredible opportunity to, to really put um, everything up for grabs and say what to be, to be super successful in the world that emerges from these various crises. How can Kent prepare itself and its people? Yeah, because uh, it almost feels cool. like, well, it, it is the birth of a new business. So I think that's the way people have been, we keep on talking about it being this billion dollar startup. Um, and that's the way that we've been trying to think about it. Like if, if everything was wiped clean, if everything was off the table and you were starting a new business all over again, um, what would it look like? But um, most people hate change, hands up, absolutely hate it, can't stand change. I, I hate it. I think John Gilly's a bit of a unicorn in this way because he says that he loves change and he thrives off it. I've never met anybody who says that before. Um, you were talking about it before, Kylie, with the people sat in an office at a desk and they didn't want to move because this was everything that they'd ever known and they'd get comfort in that. Um, so, yeah, going through this period of, of enormous change, there's, there's great... Um, excitement about it and great it's like possibility of the future and what we can all create but and and that's there right at the base of it all but generally in everyday life the offices look different we're seeing different faces um, you know previously a company that was perhaps seen as the competition now they're our workmates it's it's all very odd and I can't even imagine, you know, you're coaching through the leadership teams, but this is playing out in in probably every location that we work in and um and how people deal with that change. Is there any kind of little bits of advice that you could give to people to um to kind of advise on how you deal with that kind of stuff? Um how long have you got, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think before the pandemic, we'd have been saying things like, look for the positive, um, imagine a future where the world is better. I think what we are realising and learning is, actually, there's a lot to learn from being in it, listening to you know what's 
what's the voice inside of you saying and why? Don't ignore it anymore and listen to the outside world. Really search your heart for this is a massive opportunity. If you were to view it as an opportunity, what do you need to learn about yourself? What do you need to learn about the life you want to live? And just spend some time thinking about it rather than rushing from one thing to the next, trying to kind of be busy so I don't have to think. I think we all have that syndrome a little bit, but it gets a bit tough and a bit emotional. Just get busy. Uh, keep keep doing stuff so you don't have to think. And actually, I think the people who are taking the time to think are the ones who are emerging stronger and more resilient from what we've been going through the last 18 months. Yeah, I think, um, I know personally from my point of view, it's it's forced me to examine how I react to things like I've never really had to think about stuff like that but everything feels so raw at the moment and I'm sure there's lots and lots of people in the world that feel like this that it's actually made me step back and think how am I reacting to each individual like really extreme situations and am I helping it or am I making it worse um yeah just kind of taking that time to pause and it's 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 made me step back and think about um, myself, really. And, yeah, just how you react to the world in, in extreme circumstances. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that is also what's happening a lot right now. Like the, no matter where we are in the world and how, how privileged or not our circumstances might, might be, we all have experienced but in the last two years a pressure and a stress that we've not experienced before. And even now, like we're a couple of years through, so we're not in that crisis management mode that we were in at the beginning of the pandemic, February 2020. It's the slow burn of stress and adrenaline can still put us Mm -hmm. all into high stakes and can still kind of have our shadow behaviours be the main behaviour that's showing rather than our normal light side. So I think that that's what you said is really, really important. Like it, it is showing us who we are under stress and pressure. And the more we see that, you know, I guess the greater we can understand ourselves, but we also can learn a bit more about like, well, okay, like you said, Joe, how am I being, is this helping or hindering this relationship and this situation right now? And what do I need to do? You know, do I need to take myself off for five minutes and breathe? Do I, you know, do 10 yeah. star jumps and change my energy? <laughs> you know, what do I need to yeah, do? Yeah, and all of that. I think I've tried every single technique um, because it's about, I feel like over the past 18 months, whether that's in people's personal lives or in the work lives, there's been a lot of tough conversations that have needed to be had. And my default is tough conversation. I'm out of here. I'm not doing it. I just avoid, avoid, avoid. And this, this past 18 months has really forced me to learn to have the tough conversations. And it's really important to have the tough conversations and, and kind of go into things open-minded, trying to listen, not, not taking too much of what you're feeling into those conversations um, but it's it's hard. I don't know. I think that's something that if anybody has got that solved, can you please tell me how? 
it's something is it not something that we all constantly have to work on it will be until the day we die yeah definitely that's the thing about this um I remember when I had my first coach accreditation I was like in my early 20s in the early years of me at Deloitte and um the facilitator of the program said once you start this journey there's no looking back there's no going back I think there is a lot of looking back but there's no there's no going back and it's so true like once you start becoming curious you can't turn off that curious mind it's it's like it's open and it's there yeah Yeah. it's hard and uncomfortable at times but all worth it um so at Kent we like to talk a lot about culture organizational culture um and a lot of what you've told us already you know speaks a lot about that but there's another project that you've been supporting us with since we made the acquisition um of SNC Lavalin's oil and gas business so that was the first of August was when it was officially announced and that was the time that we kicked off this deep deep listening culture project um because we see this is something that John Gilly has championed all the way along it actually came from his brain um we see it as a central driver to the success of not just this integration period but the future of the business I mean I could talk about it for weeks but I'm not going to I'll let you um I'll let you to describe exactly what's been going on over the past four months are we um we are really delighted with the approach Kent decided to take. Carly and I have spent a number of years working on culture projects and strategy and vision uh, projects and trying to convince leadership teams that it's most powerful, it is most effective when you include as many people as possible. Culture is owned by everybody. And um, leaders come up with all sorts of excuses like we haven't got time or we haven't got the resource and they always, not always, often um, go into a darkened room and come up with the answers themselves and then yeah. roll it out to the organization. And our experience is oftentimes then there's beautiful posters that sit on walls that no one really looks at and no one really owns. And the leadership team um, and John really, really wanted to have the voice of the people. And so um, with the COVID, with the pandemic, we were we spent a lot of time thinking with people like yourself, Joe. How do we do this in the most inclusive way? And we landed on um, Zoom as a one of the effective ways to get to as many people as possible. So that involved a number of culture conversations. I think we spoke to about a thousand people, a thousand of the ten thousand yeah. in total. Um, we also spoke with project managers who have their feet on the ground. Um, the survey as well. And then we looked at documentation just to check, do do the words and other systems and processes that are starting to emerge, reflect the kind of things that people are saying is important to them. Um, and some of the themes that have come out have been, I want to feel a really strong theme is, I want to feel like I belong and that I matter. Yeah. Um, across every geography, own country that was a steady steady theme um and another one that emerged was a real appreciation for the visible leadership and the open the open leadership 
like I want to talk to you, I'm accessible, you can talk mm. to me. Uh, those two were really strong themes that people were noticing already as Kent had emerged from, was it August 1? August 1, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, how does this, that, I, th- I feel like that's always a, one of our biggest challenges for the type of business that we are. Um, 10,000 people, I think 26 countries spread all the way across the world. People have different cultural backgrounds and different, um, you know, they, they have different ways of thinking, thinking about things. So culture shows up very differently in different locations. But at the same time, everybody's human and we all have the same basic human needs. Um but can you talk me through the culture web that you talk about quite a lot? And and that was basically the 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 driving factor of all of the conversations that we'd had, the workshops that, that we'd had with the organization and the questions that we'd asked were all around the culture web, which basically shows um, the different ways that culture shows up, because it's not just all in the way that we interact with each other. It's obviously a key part of it, but it's not just all there. Culture shows up all over the place. So can you talk me through that web and and give us a bit of an insight into where culture shows up? Yeah. Um, We like to use the culture web for the same reasons that you've just suggested, Joe. that it is how it's not what we do on its own. It's how we do it that is the culture in a business um, and how we do things covers so many different um, fields <laughs> in any business. So right at the heart of the culture web is the paradigms, the beliefs that an organisation has. So um, one of the things that we were hearing people say is that this joining of two really strong organizations means that we can believe that we can go for the really exciting um, high-level projects in our industry. So does Kent believe that they are a, you know, a really great candidate for the, the best projects that are out there or does they have a belief that is different to that? So the beliefs that an organisation has will dictate um, the behaviours and the actions that follow on from that. So right at the heart of the culture web is the beliefs that an organisation has. Um, so that's the right in the middle. And then around the edges of the culture web, we've got different things like the stories and myths. So when we asked in the culture conversations where Mel was saying we spoke to around a thousand of the people in Kent across all different locations and nationalities. And we asked them like, what are the stories that you want to be sharing around Kent like now and in the future? And there were some great stories around, we want to share about what kind of environment we all work in that we all are empowered to bring our best into our day that we all support each other and there was this strong theme of we're like a family coming through 
there was also some really awesome specific stories about specific individuals in the business that have been outstanding and stood out for the right reasons. And so the stories that people share will shape a culture. Um, and, you know, whether those stories are the stories you want them to share or not is going to shape the culture. Um, mm. Also things like what kind of symbols do you have? Like if somebody, Mel and I have gone into an organisation before where the car parks out the front of the front door, you know, the ones that have the least amount of walking distance to <laughs> to get to the front door <laughs> are reserved for the most senior people in the organisation. And we're like, is that, that is a symbol of your culture. Do you reserve them for your clients and your customers or do you reserve them as a sign of status within your organization so we're not suggesting there's anything around car parks um, necessarily that needs to be looked at but it was an example of the symbols and the subtle things that we forget um, with an organization do also share the culture we've worked with organizations before that say we're agile we're modern and then mel and i are in the reception and we're just looking around waiting to go into the meeting and we're just looking for what shows us in this reception that they're modern and they're agile and they're funky etc so you've got things like the symbols you've also got um power structures which is how decisions are really made because you'll have an organization structure but if the organizational structure is um, onerous, like it takes a long time for decisions to get made, then you will have a power structure that is, oh, I know someone who can get that done quicker for you. Um, a bit of a mm. wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing. So you can get different power structures that evolve. And so in a modern organization, you want the power structures to be fast, agile decision making where the decision matters by the people who are going to be most impacted by it. So that, you know, what was coming up in Kent was that that we do want that we want our we, we do want some guidance where we can be similar globally but also where we can be trusted to make the right decisions in the moment so we're quick on our feet with our clients and then you've got things like rituals and routines um, so if you think about some of the things that organizations might celebrate um, so they might celebrate you know in annual Christmas party or St. Patrick's Day or birthdays or, you know, we've just won amazing um, project, let's celebrate that, or we've just finished an amazing project. Um, or it could be someone's just graduated from their exam. So what is it that an organisation ritually celebrates? That also gives a sense of what the culture in an organisation is. So the culture web kind of travels all the way around those kinds of topics, helping you think about culture in a very broad sense. What have I forgotten, Mel? I think you've nailed it. The, the only thing I would add is communication is a, is a big part of rituals and routines as well. And our experience is more traditional organisations communicate less often and top down, where more mm -hmm. agile organisations, the communication is peer to peer. It's more spontaneous. It's more regular. It's more human and authentic. It's not um, formal communication that uses old formal language, you know, that kind of language. So th that's something we look for because it's really symbolic about what an emerging culture is likely to be. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's all fascinating. So we've we've done the deep dive of four months of listening work. And this will um, culminate by the time we actually, so this has been recorded in December, and by the time we're actually releasing this conversation to the world, um, will be around the time that we're actually releasing the outputs, shall we say, of this first phase of our culture work. Um, but I guess it's important to say that we fully recognise that we don't just do a listening phase, come out with the results and go, yay, culture fixed, this is it. There you go, off you pop. Go and go and implement the culture. There will be, um, you know, a more focused approach to how what we actually do with this work now, what we actually do with the outputs, how we actually support our teams all the way around the world to make sure that they've got um, good culture showing up in their teams and their regions and things like that. So this is just the beginning of um, of what's to come, I guess. So um, I find the work that you two do absolutely fascinating and um, I know that the leadership team in particular think the absolute world of you both. Um, but before we let you go today, I would like to do some quick fire questions because it's a little bit of fun and um, it helps us to get you know to know you a little bit more. So um, before we do that, I just want to ask um, as two people with the experience that you've got, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to the next generation of people entering the workplace in this changing world, what would it be? Um, for me, it would be own your own career, own your career and your development. Um, I've worked with a few young people um, recently who've been saying, um, I know I can get that um, promotion. I just need my line manager to sign off on this development. And I say things like, well, well, how much does that development cost? Mm. Is it affordable for you to do? Because if you own it and you drive it, you won't be waiting for someone to tell you when you can get a promotion. You'll be making it happen for yourself. And um, our experience of younger people who are coming through and who are um, enjoying what they do and feeling ownership of what they do is they own it rather than letting other people own it and uh, waiting to get permission. Kylie? I uh, Just one, Joe. just one bit of advice. <laughs> um, yeah. I've learned so much um, in my life so far. I, I think the one thing that I would love to share today would be take care of your body. If you take care of your body, it's going to, um, take care of your mind and then take care of your relationships and the world you know the I the we and the it lens yeah um take care of your body is quite a fun it just reminded me of I took my eldest son to the opticians last week um just for a quick eye test and he was asking me in the car on the way back why we had to do through that why we had to go through that process um, and we were talking about the fact that the optician had said don't look at too many screens if you are looking at a screen don't make sure they're right next to your eye and all of this kind of stuff because you'll end up with really bad eyesight by the time you're 16 um, and I was saying to him with the car on the way I was like you've got to look after your eyes and your teeth <laughs> and your knees 
<laughs> the really three very important things that you're going to need by the time you get to my age. So please take care of them. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's do the quick fire questions. And this is quite funny because some of these questions um, in the leadership development that you give to the um, the leadership teams, and some of them are really difficult and really sticky. So I'm <laughs> just kind of throwing them back at you. <laughs> uh, you're just going to have to go for it. <laughs> um, so, okay, uh, Kylie, who's the person you most admire and why? I really admire my mum. I mean, I admire so many people. I really admire my mum. She has reinvented herself so many times over the years and she started her own business at the age of 60 <laughs> and she's thriving. Wow. Yeah. What is it she does? She is a bookkeeper. Um, wow. So she, she works with a lot of smaller businesses that don't have a need for a, um, an accountant or a, um, an FD yeah. and she does their work for them. Yeah. Um, Mel, who do you admire? Um, I think... It's not really a particular person. I just really admire people who volunteer and give up their time for other people. Yeah, I was at, I had my COVID booster yesterday and half of the team that were there were volunteers. So putting themselves in precarious situation um, and doing it just because they want to do the right thing. I just think that's so admirable. Yeah. And you, you see it all over the place, don't you? My My sons all play football for a grassroots junior football club in the area and all of the coaches that work for that club they're all volunteers they're all just doing it because they just want to help the kids and stuff and I just I just think it's amazing um so Kylie tell me a habit or a ritual that you do that either improves your life or helps you to perform better uh, that's easy Joe. that's yoga for me it improves my life and it helps me perform better in <laughs> in you know, in many, many aspects. Yeah. Yoga. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mel? Um, meditation and I'm just going to put them together because they do kind of go hand in hand, being outside in nature. So often I'll mm. be out in nature and find a spot and just sit and notice what's there and just be really mindful. It's, it's very calming. Are you enjoying that a lot more now you're back in the UK for Christmas? I, do you know what? I, I, there are lots of lovely places in Dubai to do the same. Um, admittedly, you have to choose your time of day. <laughs> it is easier in the UK. It's a bit cooler, though, sitting outside with 17 layers on and very cold yeah. feet. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I quite like it, though. I like a woolly yeah. hat and big gloves and stuff. Agreed. Um, Kylie, if you had a dream you could make happen that would change the world for the better, what would it be? You've got to choose just one. Just one. <laughs> uh, I I think Mel's actually just sparked my thinking on this one. Um, I'd say mutuality. Mutuality is where all parties win, or all stakeholders win, like I win and the planet wins, or I win and you win. And I was just thinking, you know, I've got my, I'm very lucky, I have got my booster, COVID booster tomorrow. But there are people who haven't even had one vaccine. And, you know, mm. I think if there was one thing that I could make happen that would make the world a better place, it would be mutuality where we we all win and the planet wins as well. Yeah, everything on an equal footing. Um, Mel? No litter. 
It's my dream. <laughs> I think if if we really nailed and got our arms around dealing with rubbish and waste, uh, and we all owned it, then the world would be in so much better shape. Yeah, that's good. Um, what was it I was watching? I was watching a programme last week or the week before. I can't remember what it was, some kind of comedian panel show thing. And um, they had a guy in the audience who was like a public artist. Like what he does, what he creates in the public spaces could be classed as graffiti, but it's really, really beautiful. But everywhere he went, if he was like drawing on pavements or anything like that, um, he would get taken in by the police, um, you know, for graffitiing or defacing public property or whatever it was. And he'd started this project where he would draw on pieces of chewing gum that had been left on the floor. Have you seen no. that? Have you seen this guy? So there's, so there's places in the in the country where the court, the floors are just spots. They're just covered with chewing gum. And he would get down and create pieces of art, really, really detailed pieces of art on little pieces of chewing gum. And then the councils couldn't do anything about it because he wasn't touching public property. <laughs> and he was making them beautiful. So, you know, there's no place for litter, but maybe beautifully created pieces of chewing gum would be quite <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, Reflect okay, on that Kylie, <laughs> Kylie, what is on your adventure list? Uh, you know, we're recording this at Christmas time and um, Lapland is definitely on my adventure list. I feel like it's got to happen in the next few years. My kids would absolutely love it. We'd love it. Like just the magical element of Christmas is I'd, I would love to go to Lapland is that is that the Australian coming out because you have very hot Christmas yeah and you're thinking I want to go somewhere snowy for Christmas yeah I think you know we sing <laughs> we grow up singing um dreaming of a white Christmas you know we sing all this we <laughs> sing all the same songs that are sung over here but we're doing it you know, even Santa doesn't wear a big coat in Australia. He wears shorts and flip-flops. And <laughs> so it's like, it's very, I mean, I love Christmas in Australia. It's outdoors. It's, um, it's, it's big, you know, it's big, I guess, because of our family, but it's outdoors and it's just lovely. It's very different from Christmas here. But, yeah, definitely, I'd definitely love to go to have Christmas in the snow. Yeah. Um, what about you, Mel? Well, I'm the proud owner of a camper van, and so on my adventure list is driving the whole of the coastline of the UK and then jumping over to Europe and driving through some of the most beautiful valleys and areas of Europe and up into the fjords in Scandinavia. And then Route 66 is the third one. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Um Okay, Kylie, three people living or dead that you'd love to have dinner with? Um, you know, I just really would love to go home to Australia and have dinner with my family. It's been a, it's been too long mm -hmm. with the pandemic. I'm not allowed back in the country <laughs> yet um, um, unless I do a two-week hotel quarantine. But with small children, I do not fancy that. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd just like to be able to do what I used to do, get on a plane and go see my family and sit around the table and have dinner. I don't want just three of them, Joe. I want all of them, you know, like <laughs> all my friends and my family. I just want to be back with them in Australia again. Yeah. What about you, Mel? Hmm. Three people living or dead. So 
One of them would be my dad who died when I was two. I would love to have dinner with him and find out who he really was and um, what he really stood for. Um, another one would be Mother Teresa. I want to find out if anyone can be that good or whether she actually <laughs> had a bit of a wicked streak that um, the marketeers kept hidden from the world. <laughs> and then Muhammad Ali. Um, I just thought he was such an incredible entertainer and um, you know, he changed he changed so much because of the banter, I think, the language he used and the premonitions he would give. And I would just love to find out a bit more behind the man and what made him the inspiration. But he certainly was for me. He was a real inspiration for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's us for this conversation. It's been really, really interesting. And I'm so pleased that you came on and spoke to us. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <Bye. laughs> Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Joe. Mel and Kylie have been transformational in shifting leadership behaviours and thinking at Kent. And we know that creating a healthy culture must start with leadership. Our people have spoken and collectively decided what great culture looks like. And if we all live these values and create a great place to work, I wonder how it will benefit our lives as a whole. Will we be healthier, have less stress? Will we improve the lives of others? Will we be better parents, friends, spouses? The possibilities are endless. So now this initial phase is completed, we move into phase two. How do we build and embed great culture right across our organization? We've got some cool ideas, but we want to continue with the co-creation mindset we've used so far as we paint a vision for the future and work hard to make it a reality every single day. In the meantime, if you want quick access to a physical output from the beginnings of our culture work, you can see our organisational values on our website. We're so proud of the way these have come together. Not dreamt up by a load of suits in a boardroom, but through lots of honesty and collaboration from all Kent people across the world. If you enjoyed this conversation, please hit subscribe. Until next time, stay happy and stay safe.